as we continue our sermon series through the parables. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here. We've given um, this parable sermon series the subtitle, Earthly Stories, Eternal Truths. They're, they're true-to-life stories, earthly stories that teach us significant, eternally significant things. Last week, we gave the following definition to a parable. Say this definition out loud for me. It'll be up here on the screen. Say it out loud. A simple word picture or story composed to illustrate a profound truth. A simple word picture or story composed to illustrate a profound eternal truth. And if you missed the introductory message last week, um, go back, um, go online, look at that. Um, that. That introductory message sort of set the stage for where we're going as a congregation over the next 10 to 12 weeks, okay? But for now... We're going to dive into our first parable together. Now, chronologically speaking, this is not the first parable that Jesus told. But it is a very applicable parable. And I chose it because of that very fact. The fact that it, probably more than any of the other parables that Jesus told, all 40-some of them, this particular parable is most, most applicable to a modern Western culture. You'll see why here in just a second. But I would argue that if we truly hear the meaning and the message of this parable, there's not even one of us in this room that can say, nah, that really doesn't apply to me. On the contrary, if we have ears to hear, as Jesus said, if we have ears to hear what he's trying to teach us and the original audience through this story, it's going to confront us directly. And convict us deeply as modern Western Christians. And the parable is on the topic of money, okay, and stuff. And since we live in perhaps the most materialistic culture in the history of the world, this is definitely going to apply to our lives. And here's the brass tacks of it. If we don't adequately hear its message and effectively apply it to our lives, we run the eternally significant risk of being called foolish by God rather than being called faithful by God. So the stakes are high. So if you have your Bibles, if they're not already open to Luke chapter 12, go ahead and, and do that. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. There are, there's a little small stack of them at the Connect Point. Please take one of those as our gift to you. You know, this story that Daniel read for us, this parable, is traditionally called the parable of what? Anybody know? The parable of the rich fool. And in societies where subsistence living was the norm, that is an adequate title for this parable. But did you know that the majority of the original hearers of this parable were hearers of a culture of subsistence living? They, they, um, all they could probably afford was the clothes on their back, their next meal or two, and a tiny roof over their heads. And by comparison, this man described in this parable is indeed rich. This guy had barns to store his grain. That's the modern day equivalent to bank accounts that store money. Okay. Here in America, we'd probably just call this guy, well, middle class at best. So because of our cultural context, where most of us have bank accounts, 
or an IRA with, with some sort of positive balance in it, stuff in storage in our closets or elsewhere, more than just the clothes that we, we wore to church today, um, I'd like to go ahead and rename this parable for our cultural moment, for our context. And we're simply going to call it this. The parable of the middle class fool. I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm sorry. The parable of the middle class fool. And we'll discover today that the typical American way of living, of life, wasn't invented by Americans. Imagine that. It predates us. And Jesus addresses it right here in story form in Luke chapter 12. Well, what is the typical American way of living? I'm glad you asked. It's this. It's working hard or as hard as you can to accumulate as much as you can to live as comfortably as you can. Say that out loud with me. Work as hard as you can to accumulate as much as you can so that you can live as comfortably as you can. To quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. This is the way here in America. In short, we have a donut economy. People are going nuts chasing the dough. As Americans, we have very, we become very adept at accumulating stuff. Did you know that 63% of all of our housing units and 82% of standalone homes in this country have garages? In other words, we just, we don't just have enough to put roofs over our own heads. We build homes for our cars. But I've noticed something while taking walks in my neighborhood in the suburbs, the subdivision where I live, where every house has a two car garage or a three car garage. Most people, seem to park their cars in the driveway or on the street. So that made me curious to do a little bit of research. And so I Googled this. And did you know, here's what I found. Did you know that only 15% of Americans that have garages actually park their cars in their garages? Only 15% of that 85%. Why? Stuff. Stuff. Yes. What are the, what are the 85, what are the, if there's 15% that only use it, what do the other 85% do? They put stuff in it. They fill them full of other stuff. And when our garages are full, well, what do we do? We secure other houses for our stuff. We call these houses storage units. And they're often climate controlled. So we have air-conditioned homes for our extra stuff. And we call this normal. Get this, storage units are a $40 billion business annually in this country. $40 billion business, not million, billion. Okay, that being said, let's turn our attention to the text of Luke chapter 12. And we can start this text with the parable that Jesus teaches in Luke's, in verse 16. But if you were here last week, you learned something. You learned the top three rules of interpreting parables. We also mentioned the top three rules of real estate, which are location, location, location. But what are the top three rules of interpreting parables, those who were with us last week? Context, context, context. Okay, so let's back up. And if you have your Bible open, look at the beginning of Luke chapter 12 or the Bible app on your phone. Either one will work. Look at the beginning of Luke chapter 12 and notice how this whole chapter starts. You'll see there that there are thousands of people crowding in to hear Jesus teach to the extent that they're trampling over one another. They're clamoring to get close to Jesus. 
the popularity of Jesus was growing at this point. The people are clamoring to be near him, to hear him teach. And as you observe verses 1 through 12 of this chapter leading up to this parable, you'll notice that Jesus capitalizes on having this audience, having this big crowd. And he begins to teach them some very profound, eternally significant things. He teaches them about fearing God instead of men. He teaches them about forgiveness. He teaches them about the reality of hell. There's some heavy stuff leading up to this parable. And then very abruptly in verse 13, we read this. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Can you picture this scene? The crowds are pressing in from every side to hear Jesus teach. And then there's this one guy who just so happens to be lucky enough to be in the front row. I don't know if he elbowed his way up there or what, but he's there. He has proximity to Jesus. He has access to Jesus. And what does he do? Instead of listening to God in the flesh teach, he interrupts. He interrupts Jesus in the middle of his teaching. Hey, Jesus, you know, what you're saying about, about fearing God and hell, yeah, that's cute and all, but, but here's what I really need from you. I need you to settle this money dispute between me and my brother. Talk about boldness. Jesus wasn't even talking about money. And so this man's request is, is out of left field. It, it's totally out of the blue. And you know, how many of you work as teachers in some form or fashion? Okay, a few of you, a few of you. Um, you've probably experienced something like this and know how it feels, okay? You have worked hard on your lesson plan. You've come up with the detailed things that these kids need to take home, and you have hit a home run with your lesson, and then a kid raises their hand, and the first thing that comes out of their mouth shows you that they weren't paying attention to a single word you just said. They're in la-la land in their own little world, and... You just feel kind of deflated. It's like, oh, why do I do this? <laughs> That's probably how Jesus felt right here. Well, let's look at how Jesus responds in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter between or over you? In other words, uh, sorry, dude, I'm not going to take this case. I'm not going to take this case. You see, it was, this isn't totally out of the blue, because in that day, rabbis, teachers often were called upon to settle disputes, probably not in the middle of their teaching, but that's why this guy is asking Jesus. He, he muscled his way to the front to ask this question, to get Jesus to settle this money dispute. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take the case because Jesus apparently saw past this man's demand and into this man's Jesus knew that the man's deepest need was not a mediator between um, him and his brother, but a mediator between him and God. Jesus knew that this guy needed an eternal savior much more than he needed an earthly judge. And so looking past this man's word, Jesus saw a heart that was wrapped up in what was temporal, in what was material, rather than what is eternal. And instead of taking the guy's case, Jesus decides to give a warning, to, to point out what this guy is missing, to, to, to basically do kind of open heart surgery on him in front of a crowd and say, here's what's going on on the inside, and this is much more dangerous, this is much more insidious, this is much more pressing than this dispute that you're having with your brother. I see something in your heart, and so I'm going to address that. 
You need a savior, not a judge. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, not, notice he doesn't say, it doesn't say to him. So, so who does Jesus turn to say this to? He's not just directing his, his teaching to this guy, though the guy's in the crowd. He has expanded his message now to the whole crowd that's listening after this interruption. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life. Get this. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And after this, Jesus launches into telling the parable of the middle class fool. So from the context, remember, context, context, context. From the context of this parable, why does Jesus tell it? Well, first, to warn us about the dangers of desiring stuff that we don't have. Be on your guard against all covetousness. But mainly, I would say, it's the second half of this phrase, to confront the notion that having stuff equals having life. To confront the notion that having stuff equals having life. One's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Now, can you see how this parable seems custom-made for our consumeristic, materialistic American culture? Where we often equate having stuff with having life. Let's look at the parable, verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, self, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Wow. Aside from this being an agrarian, being an agrarian society, this sounds eerily similar to our American notions, our American way of life, to work as hard as we can, to accumulate as much stuff as we can, so that we can retire and live as comfortably as we can. If you'd like to leave now, go ahead, because this is going to get convicting, okay? As we study this parable, we're going to observe three mistakes that this middle-class fool makes. So if you're taking notes, you can write three foolish mistakes on the top of your notes. And his first mistake is this. He was stuff-oriented, stuff-oriented. What was this man's first thought when he had a bumper crop? Had more than he actually needed and didn't have space to store his grain in his barns, his money in his bank accounts. His first thought was, how can I keep all this excess? How, how can I store all my stuff? And he, he makes plans to dare, tear down his existing barns to build bigger and better barns that can hold even more grain. He decides to upgrade. He was oriented around the material rather than the eternal. You know, if I can just find a way to retain all this excess grain, he thought, I'll be able to take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. I won't have a worry in the world. I will have arrived at life that truly is life. Now, why was this a mistake? Here's why. Because money is a liar. And possessions, the things that you can buy with money, also lie to us. Here's the lie. The more stuff you have, the more life you'll enjoy. Say that out loud. The more stuff you have, the more life you'll enjoy. That's spoken with a forked tongue. It comes straight from the pit of hell. It is a lie. 
Having stuff equals having life. No, it's a lie. The man who interrupted Jesus and prompted this parable was believing this lie. He was in a dispute with his own brother over an inheritance. Why? Because inheritance, his inheritance was lying to him. It was saying, if you lose me, you'll lose an important part of your life. If I slip through your fingers, your brother gets a bigger share. You'll miss out on what he gets. You'll miss out on life that truly is life. That's what the inheritance was saying, and it was a lie, and he was believing it, which was why he was so bent out of shape, which was why that when he was in the very presence of God on earth, he didn't listen to a single word, but just interrupted. So Jesus warned that life doesn't consist in the abundance of one's possessions, having stuff does not equal having life. It's also why the Apostle Paul gave us this exhortation in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. He's talking to Timothy, telling Timothy to tell his congregation. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I want you to hear this correctly. Money in and of itself is not evil. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So we have to ask the question, well, what is the love of money? Quite simply, it's believing the lie that money whispers into all of our ears that if you just have more of it, you'll have more of life. It's believing that lie. The love of money is looking to money to provide for you what only God can truly provide for you. Life that truly is life. It's looking to money to provide satisfaction or security or significance or some combination of all three. It's looking to money. As you should look to God. Right after this parable, Jesus tells us down in verse 34 of this same chapter, where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's remember context, context, context that comes after where your treasure is there. Your heart will be also your heart will follow what you value. And if you are valuing money over God, money will become what your God, small G God and And if you are valuing money over God, it's an idol, a pseudo savior that will control you as you pursue it, disappoint you if you get it, and devastate you if you lose it. Don't hear Jesus incorrectly here. Being wealthy in itself isn't wrong. It's dangerous, but it's not wrong. But loving wealth is looking to it as sort of a pseudo-savior for your significant security, your satisfaction. That is wrong. The middle-class fool's bumper crop wasn't the main problem. After all, it was God who gave it to him. Getting a bonus at your work is not the main problem. God is blessing you with that. God knows that we need financially successful, kingdom-oriented Christians. But hear this, but to whom much is given, what? Much is required. To whom much is given, much is required, which leads us to the second mistake of this middle class. 
fool. Not only was this guy stuff-oriented, he was also self-centered. He was also self-centered. Let's read verses 16 through 19 again, and I want you to pay attention to some repeated words. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Did you catch it? Pretty obvious. What are the repeated words? My, 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 I, I, I. My friends, if you have eye problems, your perspective on life is going to be blurry. This text reads like the script for the seagulls on Finding Nemo. You know what they say? Mine, 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 mine. When this guy suddenly had way more than he needed, who was the first person on his mind? Himself. Himself. His mind wasn't on the needs of others, it was on his retirement, on his 401k or 403b or whatever it was. And why was this a mistake? Because it's further evidence that he's believing money's lie that having more stuff equals having more life. But if you ask somebody who makes $25,000 a year, what will make them complete and happy? You know what they'll say? They'll often say $50,000 a year. And if you ask somebody who makes $50,000 a year, what will make them complete and happy and have life that truly is life? They'll say $75,000 a year. And if you ask somebody who has $75,000 a year, what will make them true and happy and complete and feel good and healthy in life? They'll say $100,000 a year. And if you ask somebody who has $100,000 a year, what will they say? They'll say, well, maybe two hundred. dollars And if you ask somebody who has two hundred, what will they say? Well, maybe five hundred. dollars If you ask somebody who has five hundred, what will they say? Well, maybe a million. And then we get into Jeff Bezos pretty soon. Okay? Why? Because enough is never enough. Money lies. Things lie. They say this is where life is found, but when you get to that level, it's not there. It must be at the next one, and at the next one, and at the next one. It's always going to be more than you have, because money and possessions can never satisfy your soul. The middle-class fool's way of thinking was built on a lie, and ironically, in only storing up resources for his own retirement, what he thought would give him life, in what he thought would, only, would give him life, he actually missed out on life that truly is life. We'll get to that and unpack it in a second. But do you know what you call someone who believes a lie and acts on it? Someone who swallows a falsehood hook, line, and sinker? Well, down here in the South, y'all are polite. Um, I'm becoming more Southern. We might look at that person and we might just say, bless your heart. Bless your heart. You know, in the Midwest where I came from before moving here, you know, they're, they're still polite, but they're a little bit more direct. And they might just call that person gullible, you know, gullible. Um, out West where I grew up, yeah, we just forget the niceties. Let's just say it like it is. We call him a fool. Well, that's exactly what God calls this man. Let's read verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, what? Fool, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Take note of that question. We'll come back to it. Not only was this guy stuff-oriented and self-centered, Thirdly, he was short-sighted. 
He was short-sighted. He failed to account for the brevity of life. And that was a huge mistake. He foolishly neglected the fact that life on earth is less than a single drop of water compared to the vast, vast ocean of eternity. That very night, this guy's earthly life was going to be over. He was going to die and enter into eternity. And God asks him an interesting question in verse 20, doesn't he? Who then will get what you've prepared for yourself? What's the implied answer to that? Others. Probably the people that he could have generously helped while he was still alive. The people that he could have blessed and subsequently found great joy and life from helping. Because as the Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, verse 35, quoting Jesus, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And Jesus ends this parable with kind of a summary verse in verse 21. He says this, So it will be, or so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What what does that little phrase at the end mean, rich toward God? It's kind of a curious phrase. It's the only time this phrase is used in the Bible, rich towards God. What does it mean? Well, if you look at how the verse is constructed, it's it's pretty apparent, pretty obvious, based on the contrast contained within the verse itself. Being rich toward God is the opposite of laying up treasure for oneself. Being rich toward God is the opposite of acting as though life consists in the abundance of your possessions, which it doesn't, consistent of knowing and enjoying God. So, So being rich toward God is when your heart moves towards God, As your riches. Being rich toward God means moving toward God as your ultimate and highest treasure. Counting God as greater riches than anything on this earth. And this is what the middle class fool neglected to do. Which not only made him a fool. It made him a damned fool. Because he lost his soul. He made a stupid trade, his stuff for his soul. And Jesus told his disciples in Mark 8, verses 35 through 36, whoever wants to lose, save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's a paradox, something that doesn't really make sense, but it works. Verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What good is it? Being rich toward God is making God your treasure. And practically speaking, being rich toward God is using earthly riches to show how much you value God. Later in Luke chapter 12, right after this parable, as Jesus continues his teaching on the the backflow of this parable, parable, he tells his disciples this in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. You know what that phrase means in the original Greek? It means sell your possessions and give to the poor. The poor in Jesus' day were the people without provision and protection, orphans, widows, diseased diseased outcasts, displaced foreigners. So in applying this text in our modern context, what should we ask ourselves? Who are the people without provision and protection? Immigrants? Refugees, orphans, the exploited, the marginalized. 
And how can we resource or leverage our resources to help? Sell your possessions and give to the poor, Jesus says. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no no thief comes near, no moth destroys. As Jim Elliott is famously quoted as saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So as a predominantly American class or middle class American congregation, how do we ensure that we're not called foolish by God, but called faithful instead? I'd like to wrap up by having us reflect on four challenging questions. Four challenging questions. They'll go by fairly quickly, so if you want to mull these over later, just take screenshots with your phone of the, the screen behind me. Question number one. What story does my credit card statement and bank statement tell regarding what I value most? What story does my credit card statement and bank statement tell regarding what I value most? And some of you just kind of put your phones away. I don't, this is too convicting. I don't want to do that. Um, (laughs) In other words, what does your spending say about what you value? You tend to spend money on what you value, right? What you value is what you treasure, and your heart, your worship, follows your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Looking at your spending habits, my friends, will help you determine whether you're treasuring God or treasuring some kind of God substitute. Question number two. Do I spend more time thinking about things to accumulate or people to impact? Do I spend more time thinking about things to accumulate or people to impact? Being rich toward God involves leveraging earthly riches to show how much you value God. Leveraging your resources for the good and the well-being and the shalom of others. One of the best ways to keep your possessions from possessing you is to give them generously to others. This is why Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves. Where? As a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what? Life. That truly is life. Life that truly is life is not found in accumulating possessions, but in giving them away. Don't be deceived, my friends. Don't believe the lie that having stuff equals having life. No, treasuring God and giving stuff equals having life. Did you get that? Treasuring God and giving stuff equals having life that truly is life. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. So question number three. Does my giving, does my giving, oh, now you're just meddling, Mark. Yep, 
Does my giving reflect a heart that is seeking first God's kingdom or seeking first my kingdom? Does my giving reflect a heart that's seeking first God's kingdom or seeking first my kingdom? Your homework this morning is to read the rest of Luke 12, at least the next 13 verses of Luke chapter 12, where he tells the disciples not to worry about stuff. Don't wrap your lives around things. Don't, don't chase after the things that everybody else chases after. Money, storing up possessions for yourselves. He says, don't do that, but then he gives, us a contra- gives them a contrasting command down in, in verse 31. He says this, but seek his kingdom and all these things that everybody's chasing after. That you'll get them. <laughs> They'll be added to you as well. They'll be given to you. God, God knows what you need. He's going to take care of you. But you don't have to wrap your, li- your life around that stuff. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first what is going to last for eternity. I love how a guy named Warren Wearsby once put it. He said this in, in reference to the Lord's Prayer. To pray your kingdom come automatically means my kingdom go. To pray your kingdom come automatically means my kingdom go. I want you to imagine that this string, a rope, represents life, except that this little part, this is illustration is not original with me, but I think it's a good one. This little part is your earthly life. And then I want you to imagine this rope is actually tied to uh, a chair rack behind the curtain. But imagine that it goes out the side door, wraps around the earth 25 times, and then heads off towards Jupiter, past Pluto. Is Pluto even a planet? I don't know. But it just keeps going off into infinitude, if that's the word, okay? It just keeps going and going and going. Okay, this is our earthly life. That's eternity. What makes more sense to wrap your life around? When it comes to your giving, are you investing here? Or are you investing there? When it comes to what you're wrapping your life around, what you're chasing after, are you chasing after this or that? What does God call the person who wraps their life around this? Well, bless their heart. He calls them a fool. Question number four. Based on this parable, how is God calling you to be generous with your resources this week? Based on this parable, how is God calling you to be generous with your resources this week? Now, before you start thinking how to answer this question, let me first remind you of what you have. This is vitally important. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to listen. Just listen to the words. They won't be up on the screen. Just listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what you have. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth 
into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and hear this, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You can open your eyes. What have we been given? An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Where is it kept? It's kept in heaven for us, the eternal part, the long part of the string. It's guaranteed. It can't go away. It it doesn't vanish when the stock market crashes. My my friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, you're, you're not just rich someday. You're already very, very, very rich right now. I mean, more than Jeff Bezos rich in Christ. You're beyond rich eternally. As the band comes back up, let me ask that question one more time. Based on the message of this parable, what is God calling you to do differently with your earthly resources this week? How is he calling you to be generous with your resources? You know, it might be as simple as setting up recurring giving with the church so that you're more intentional with your giving rather than sporadic with it. Maybe it's looking around you in your neighborhood and and, and seeing a tangible need in your sphere of influence that, that you can go, you know, I can meet that. might not even be monetary. It might be using your time and energy or a skill that you have. It might be finding a way to bless someone who has less than you. It might be making a pledge or a gift to our building fund. You know, we're in the process of about to renovate a facility that's going to facilitate, that's why we call it a facility, is going to facilitate gospel-centered ministry in this city, hopefully for years to come, unless Jesus comes back first. You might say, well, I'm a college student. I don't have any money right now. Well, you do have energy and time. Well, maybe not that much time because of your studies, but... How can you be generous with your energy and time this week? How is God calling you to be generous with your resources? To be not self-centered, but other-centered. Not stuff-oriented, but eternally-oriented. Not short-sighted, but living for the long part of the string. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that the only way that we're going to be generous is we, if we realize deeply at a heart level that we have been the recipients of amazing generosity through, in and through Jesus Christ. For you so loved the world that you gave your only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life that truly is life. And that's what we have. We have a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance through the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. And Lord, we are so grateful. Lord, may that be our motivation to open our hands, to loosen our grip on the stuff that so often grips our hearts and distracts us from you, distracts us from treasuring you above all else. Lord, we want to be an open-handed people. 
that loves as we have been loved, that gives as we have been given. But we need your help. Lord, we need to remember what you have done for us. And as we sing this closing song, remind us of the infinite riches that we have because of your forgiveness and your grace in our lives in giving us Jesus. Help us to remember, Lord, what we've been given.